Well, good morning. That was pretty good. I didn't know if y'all were going to stop talking when Mary was up here. They were enjoying themselves too much. Well, uh, welcome to Melanie Park Church. My name is Kerry Gilbert. Um, If I haven't had a chance to get to know you or meet you, then I look forward to that. Um, I grew up in Austin. Got here as quick as I could. Um, I work at the Health Sciences Center at Texas Tech University. I'm a physical therapist by background and training, and I teach anatomy. Um, I'm married. We have two kids. My uh, wife is Sherry. We've been married 25 years, 26 years in December. Uh, And then I have um, two children, Cade and Corin. Cade is uh, 23. Corin's 20. And um, it's terrific having kids. Adult kids are a little harder than than I thought they would be. Uh, I came to faith in, um, when I was 12, I don't remember what year that was, probably 82, but um, I, I'll tell more about that story in a minute, but I'm so thankful for this body of believers and for this church. Um, the, this church and the, the people in this church have dramatically influenced my life and my uh, family's life, and so we're very thankful. I have the, the distinct privilege of serving as one of your elders alongside of some very faithful men who love you and love this body. So I'm very thankful. Well, if I'm honest, I had a little bit of trouble preparing for this opening illustration. I thought um, our passage today is dealing with suffering. And really my message to you is that we need to be prepared for suffering. Peter's going to tell us to be prepared and I thought about all the different, different stuff, suffering stories that I could tell. Um, I just returned from Belgium. I had a chance to go to Brussels and uh, teach a course a few weeks ago and had a chance to go to the Bastogne War Museum, which is an amazing place, and it's a tremendous uh, monument to, the, to honoring the Allied forces that helped in World War II in the Battle of the Bulge. And suffering was all I could see in that museum. There were stories that that were depicted, but it seemed like that type of suffering was a little far off from where we are. And specifically, it's a little far off from what I believe Peter is writing about. Peter seems to be talking about the suffering related to our faith. So I thought I'd find a compelling story about Christian persecution. Maybe Bonhoeffer or the Elliots or uh, some tragic story of Christian martyrdom, and there's plenty but nothing seemed to fit the type of suffering that I believe Peter's talking about, and more importantly, the type of suffering that most of us will endure for our faith. So this morning, you're stuck with a not-so-serious but very real personal story. You're stuck with me. So I accepted Christ is my Savior when I was 12 at Pine Cove Summer Camp. So parents, if you're not sure if camp is worth it, there it is. As I began to try to walk with the Lord, I really had no idea what to do, but I knew enough from my upbringing in my home that I knew the right from wrong. I knew what was right, and I knew what was wrong. And because, I was, because I'm built, I'm wired as a pleaser, I'm built for approval, then I knew the right things to do, but they weren't always popular. As a result, during high school, I was a goody two-shoes. I don't really know what that means, but nevertheless, you understand. 
I remember feeling like an outsider, even within my own group. I desperately wanted to be part of the in crowd. And I was friends with some of the folks in the in crowd, you know, the football players and those folks. And, but I would have considered myself probably on a tier two status, right? I was a baseball player. So I had my group. But even in my own group, I felt like I was the one with the conscience. Guys, I don't know if we should be doing this, right? <clears throat> but ultimately, um, even my own friends, I was really the responsible, responsible one. And in retrospect, I'm thankful that I wasn't invited to the things that I was left out of. I'm thankful that I wasn't put under pressure that I so desperately thought I wanted. College wasn't much different. As I said, I grew up in Austin. I attended the University of Texas. I think it was the one nay vote when I became an elder, was that, that, and it was referenced that I went to that university, so I'm not sure, but you could ask Todd. So I went to the University of Texas. I joined a fraternity. It seemed like the thing to do. I was told I needed a group. Going through college without a group is tough. And so it's good to have a group, or so I thought. But honestly, it was drinking. It was debauchery all around. That's what I went from high school directly into. And I, and I went in saying, okay, here I am. I'm going to be in college. Well, ultimately, I was ridiculed because I didn't drink, or at least I didn't drink that much anyway, and because I hadn't done this or that. You see, in middle school, I had signed a purity pledge to abstain from sex until I was married. Middle school and high school students, abstain means to not to. <laughs> I hadn't done this or that yet. And so... I convinced myself that I was liked within the group because guys respected that I stood true to my morals. But as I think about it, I don't really think that was true. Eventually, my effort in my flesh to stay true to what was right was no longer enough. I began to be negatively influenced by my environment, and though I rationalized that I wasn't as bad as some other ones, other folks, I knew my behavior wasn't honoring to the Lord. This went on for a few years. Eventually, I graduated, and I came to Lubbock for physical therapy school at uh, the Health Sciences Center, Reckham. By the way, I have two degrees from tech and only one from that other place. <laughs> and so I attended the, the program, the physical therapy program, for which now is my job. That's the dire I'm the director of that program now, which is quite exciting. I'm very humbled with that. But the move to Lubbock helped me get a new start and continue my reconnection with the Lord that began in my last year at the University of Texas. I met Sherry in 1995. We got married in 97, and we found Melanie Park in 99. We raised our kids here. Our closest friends are here. But let me tell you that the detour that I took away from the leading of the Lord in my college years created some hurt, some damage, and some significant issues. My assumption is that current middle school and high school students trying to walk with Jesus deal with similar challenges. My guess is, is that often they are uninvited. 
or simply not invited to social events because they wouldn't, quote, approve. They wouldn't approve of the activities, or maybe there's the thought that they would judge their friends, or maybe they might even turn them in. And I'm sure that in this room there are people who have close relationships that have changed as a result of your faith in Christ, people who didn't want to feel judged by you, people who ridiculed you for believing those old traditional stories of the Bible, and people who might mock you for being unenlightened. Unenlightened, sorry. So let me ask you some questions to think about. Have you ever been criticized or bullied or harassed for your faith? How did it affect you? What impact did it have on your faith? Was, it, was your faith strengthened or did it weaken like mine? How should we respond? Well, the purpose of our passage today in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be prepared to suffer, be prepared for hardship, and be prepared to struggle. Well, that doesn't sound like much fun. But why? Why should we be prepared to suffer? Well, our text tells us that Jesus suffered in the flesh, ridicule, pain, and punishment. He suffered for God's glory according to God's will. Therefore, we, we will suffer according to God's will, and our suffering in our lives is our spiritual service of worship. So before we get into our passage this morning, uh, join me in prayer. Father, thank you that you have given us time together this morning in this uh, wonderful body of believers to um, be humbled, thankful, submissive, and expectant. Lord, would you uh, speak through your word today in a way that impacts our heart deep, that would establish a, a continued commitment to the truth of your word and the honor and glory of who you are and what you've done on our behalf. Would you help us to recognize the gift of life that we have in our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross? And more importantly, would you help us look to his resurrection as hope? Father, thank you for our time this morning, and I pray that you would be with us as we work through your word together. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. We'll pick up where Todd left off. And we're just going to cover the first six verses. So if you would, read with me. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So as we listen to that, it's helpful for us to 
think back upon where we've been and remind ourselves of the context of this letter that Peter has written. So remember that Peter is writing to um, persecuted and scattered Christians in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Christians were being slandered for their way of living uh, uh, in in a pagan world. They were different than the world around them, and it was causing them grief. Chapter 1, if you'll remember, Peter talks of a living hope found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this living hope is the outcome of our faith in Christ. So we're encouraged to keep sober and focus on grace. Chapter 2, as believers, we're to embrace this identity as a royal priesthood. And the readers are called to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Chapter 3 provided practical instruction or husbands and wives, and a call to always be ready to give an account, always be ready to give our testimony of hope before those around us. Verses 17 and 18 that Todd covered last week says this, for it is better if God be put to shame, or sorry, for it is better, um, maybe I need to hold my Bible better, for verse 17 of chapter 3, for it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Therefore, we're going to continue as we move into chapter 4. But what chapter 3 is doing is it's reminding us of what Christ did once for all. He was put to death in the flesh, made alive together in the Spirit. And now therefore, because Christ died for us, let us follow in his example of suffering. That we cling to the living hope we have in our salvation through grace by our faith in him who saved us. So now that we've kind of gone back and gotten the context or background of where we've been, let's move forward. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, or be prepared, also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Therefore. Well, Roger Wisdom used to say that if you see a therefore, you need to see what the therefore is there for. I don't don't see Roger today, but that was one of my favorites of his. In other words, Peter's saying, as a result of all I've told you, that because Christ suffered according to God's will, you, me, we should arm ourselves with the same purpose. In other words, we should be prepared to suffer. Why? For the will of God. Why? For the glory of God. But let's break this down a little bit more. So, since Christ suffered according to God's will, you be prepared to suffer according to God's will. And here's the main point. We suffer to bring glory to God in a similar way to how Christ suffered to bring glory to God. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not suggesting that the way we suffer is the same as the way he suffered. That's not the point. But the purpose for his suffering is similar to the purpose of our suffering. We're suffering according to the will of God for the glory of God. 
<clears throat> so since, <clears throat> since Christ suffered according to the will of God, you be prepared. And we're, being, we're suffering for uh, the glory of God. Now James 1, 2 through 5, talks about trials. You'll turn with me there. It says, James 1, 2 through 5 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Really? Take joy in our trials. I remember the first time that I read this and, and taught, uh, we were teaching a, a James Bible study for the college and career class in 2002. I remember uh, that particular year because it was the first time I had taught a college and career group, and it was in the same time frame that my father was dying of cancer and our daughter was born that year. It was a pretty challenging fall. And I read the first thing out of the box is, take joy in your trials. Really? We're supposed to take joy in our trials. That seems a little odd. How do we do that? But then it seems as if James is writing, and he knew he was writing it to me to say, that Carrie guy is going to read this and go, I don't really understand that. And so I'm going to put a line in there that says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And my assumption is the scattered Jewish Christians that James was writing to were in the same boat. How do we do this? We're being persecuted for our faith. How do we take joy in our trials? So are we to take, and then I recognized this studying it, I thought, I recognized that taking joy in a trial, it's not taking joy in the trial. What does it say? It says take joy in the trial knowing that that trial is going to produce, produce endurance, making us complete, lacking nothing. So I'm not to take joy in the fact that I'm going through a trial other than to recognize that the outcome of that trial is what I should take joy in. He's building me into who he wants me to become. He's giving me the faith and the ability to navigate and endure that trial so that it, has, it builds me into his, and, and builds me with his character. So we're not to take joy because it's hard. We're to take joy because if we, as we endure it, we're being built. And that outcome makes us complete, lacking nothing. Now, suffering can take many forms, trials or consequences. We could talk about tribulations if you want to, but, but um, let's just define trials for the sake of our discussion today. Trials might be something that's out of our control, something that happens in our life, that would be out of our control. And it's, it's oftentimes related to a testing of our faith. Now, consequences, though, often are a result of our own decisions or actions. But it's important to recognize that both trials or consequences can be used by God to bring us back into a place of reliance on Him. So let's think about my two examples in my personal story, my goody-two-shoes story. Well, I suffered a little bit because my reputation, why well, wasn't included, right? I suffered a little bit in my goody two-shoes era. It wasn't, it was suffering for my faith. I know it's a terrible example. It's not any big deal, but you get the point, right? Now, let's talk about 
when my behavior changed and I wasn't doing the right things anymore, that led to consequences that a 26-year marriage still deals with. You see the difference? But both of them, the Lord has used in my life to bring me to a place of reliance and um, uh, commitment to Him. And I want to tell you that the uh, right thing is hard, y'all. Doing the right thing is hard. Whoops. My wife asked me if I had a bottle of water, and I didn't, so she gave me hers. (laughs) This is not my water bottle. (laughs) Somebody in this church gave that water bottle to her, so... But, so let's continue. Let's look back at verse 1. What do we do with this he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin business? What do we do with that? That's a little bit confusing. <clears throat> so in uh, verse 1, it says, Arm yourselves with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of God. So let's talk about who is the he. We might start that sentence and think that he might be referring to Christ. Is it talking about the believer? Is it talking about the non-believer? Well, we need to figure that out. Well, it must be referring to the believer, and here's why. It says that, that he ceased from sin. Well, that takes Jesus right out of the mix right away, right? So we don't have to worry about that. And if sin ceased, well, it's not going to cease in the non-believer, So it must be talking about the believer. But what does that mean? Does that mean that if I'm saved by grace, that I'll never sin again? Nope, that's not what that means. Should we sin more so that grace may abound? Nope, that's not what that means. So according to Paul's uh, writing in Romans 6, really glad I included something from Romans 6, I believe it means that we're no longer controlled by sin or dominated by the flesh. So Romans 6, we were just there. And actually, I think um, Todd read all down to the point that I was going to start in verse 6. It says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7 says, For he who has died is freed from sin. So this one's tough, because as we read this as a believer, okay, I've been freed from sin, but I remember when I got baptized, I actually got baptized here in Lubbock, Texas, when I was in graduate school, and I remember coming out of the water, walking to my seat, going, okay, I'm not going to sin anymore. (laughs) <laughs> and I, it, it must have been in, in within three minutes I was like oh she's cute <laughs> I was looking at my wife we weren't married yet but she was there with me I thought oh she's cute but, but the, the point is this I think it's difficult because we read these passages and we say okay I'm a believer therefore my behavior has to be perfect is that God's desire? Sure it is. But it's, it's, it's not possible in these fleshly bodies. And so 
here's the key. We are no, this passage says we are no longer controlled by, we are no longer dominated by our flesh. But our spirit still has to reside here for a while. And it's hard. It's okay, so we're no longer controlled by our sin, and we're called to live the rest of the time in our flesh, not according to the lust of men, but for the will of God. So we are to be prepared to live in our flesh, to suffer ridicule for the will of God, but what's the will of God? It tells us pretty clearly. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, present your bodies, sorry, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. Here it is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God, that's what's good, acceptable, and perfect. And honoring God with our lives, which is what we're being called to in our passage today, is our spiritual service of worship. Our lives are our sacrifice. And by living in this manner, we can prove what the will of God is. Again, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's keep reading First Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So verse 3 says, The time has passed for us to carry out the desires of the flesh, like the Gentiles or like the non-believers. And Peter says to turn away from the old sins, uh, old ways of the sinner. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul reminds his readers that such were some of you, right? Such were some of us. We've all been saved from these things. And so while we don't need to look at them with judgment, we need to remember that that's where we were. Apart from Christ, that's who we were. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Romans 8, sorry, Romans 1, 18 to 32 talks about the depravity of man. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 talks about the deeds of the flesh. And so, such were some of you. Such were some of I. I don't know how that was supposed to go. We've all been in that place. In verse 4, 1 Peter 4, 4, Peter continues, In all this, meaning in the midst of all this sin, they, the non-believers, will be surprised that we, you and I, don't run with them in their dissipation. And they will malign you. They will speak badly about you and I because of our faith. Luke 6, 22 to 23 
The front row's chuckling because they just did this in uh, our Luke Bible study this morning. Isn't it great? Can I tell you how many times, I'm, I'm sure people cover stuff in the Sunday school lessons and they come in and hear the exact same thing on the same day. Isn't that amazing to me? It happens in our group all the time. But this was specifically the passage they covered this morning. uh, 6.22 of Luke says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. And then it goes on. But I can tell you that jumping for joy for being ostracized doesn't make a lot of sense. And it takes me back to that passage in James. Take joy in our trials, knowing that the testing of our faith has a perfect effect, leaving us complete, lacking nothing. Verse 5 of 1 Peter 4 says, But never fear, they, non-believers who are maligning you, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Who's the him? Well, that's God. Him, he, God, will judge those who persecute us. What does judge mean? It's to weigh the evidence and form a conclusion or prosecute. God is a just God and he will... He will judge. We look at living and dead. It seems to mean all generations. And so, to some degree, there's some hope here when we are feeling poorly about our situation. But have you ever wondered why people are like they are? How can people be so mean, rude, hateful? Well, here's the deal. They can't help it. Apart from the Holy Spirit, people can't be any other way. Our flesh wants to dole out uncontrolled hate, misery, anger, impatience, meanness, and aggression. We see it all over the world. However, as a blood-bought, redeemed child of the King, we are to show love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. These, this is the fruit of the Spirit. And someone once told me that's not the, those aren't the fruits of the Spirit. It's one fruit. All of that is to be included. I, I used to look at that and say, well, I'm doing pretty good this week. I've got two of the seven. I can probably get three by Friday, but... Right? I mean, all of these things should be evident in our life if we're walking with the Spirit. If the Spirit of God indwells us and we are in His Word and He is guiding and directing us, this is what should be available in our life. And I'll tell you that this right here is the barometer of my heart within my family. If I'm not loving, if I'm not joyful, if I'm not peaceful or patient, kind, gentle, or self-controlled, my family feels it. And there's people in this church that will call me out on it. It happened a couple weeks ago. So apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot act in a way that, um, with these attributes. We can't glorify God in the midst of trials apart from the Holy Spirit. But our text says that if we are armed with the same purpose, that is to glorify God according to His will, 
in the midst of trials, if we are prepared, if we seek him, study his word, and trust his spirit, then we can love others even when they aren't lovable. We can love those who speak badly about us. And we can trust that God is a just God who will justly deal with them in the end. Revenge isn't ours to have. Vindication of wrongs isn't ours to manage. Those who hurt us, ridicule us, or malign us, lie to us or mistreat us, they will be held accountable in the end. But all too often our pride wants to see that vindication in this lifetime, in our flesh, in order to relish in their demise or punishment. But ultimately, that's really between them and God for all eternity. How many times must we forgive our brother who harms us? Seventy times seven, remember? Might be easy to say, but it's extremely hard to do. So let's continue in verse 6. First Peter 4, verse 6 says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who were dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. So our text says that the gospel is preached, so men who are physically dead in the flesh may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 has one of my favorite uh, areas or favorite depictions of the gospel. And you know it. Um, you hear it spoken here all the time. But it starts with, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. We were dead, but verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so we would walk in them. We were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, made us alive together with Christ. We've been saved by grace. It's not a work that we did. Otherwise, we would take credit and boast. And ultimately, we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece prepared ahead of time and prepared for good works prepared beforehand that we would simply walk in them. That's the gospel. By his grace, we have been saved through faith. John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We were dead, but God made a way for us to be reconciled back to him through faith. Through faith in what? Through faith in Christ's life, his death and resurrection. Ultimately, we can be reunited with him. 
And as a result, listen to this. Hebrews 4.16 says that because of our faith, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's the throne of grace of the Creator. That we can approach that throne with grace because of who we are in Christ. Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not some condemnation, not minimal condemnation. It says no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. So if we're suffering, we can recognize that there is now no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says that our faith, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We're a new creation. I don't feel new, but I'm a new creation. Those baptisms that Todd uh, reminded us of, buried with, uh, with him in baptism and raised to walk in a newness of life. They are a new creation, not because of the baptism, but because of their faith. And that symbolism creates an opportunity to, for them to, to show us what they believe, but that symbolism is buried with him in his death, but raised to walk in a newness of life. We're a new creation. And so we're called to live differently than we used to. This is the gospel of Christ. It's the reason why there's consternation between us and the world. This is what the world rages against. And here's the promise that if we're given, that, that we're given if we are in Christ, and that is that we have the identity as a royal priesthood. It's the purpose that we have. That because we are redeemed, we should have confidence that the suffering that's ahead is according to his will for his glory. And as we continue with verse 6, there's some, at least for me, there was some confusing terms. The word dead is listed in verse 5 and 6, and judgment or judge is listed in 5 and 6. And so it took me a little bit, but I don't believe that, I believe that the dead is dead. Dead's dead. They were dead, and they're still dead. But that means physically dead. But the judgment is different. In verse 5, the judgment is according to God. In verse 6, it says they were judged according to men. So verse 6 appears to be referring to those who had been martyred for their faith in Christ, even though they were judged in the flesh, meaning according to the standards of men. But now they are alive in the spirit according to the will of God. They may live, quote, or maybe it might be easier to see as they are living for all eternity according to the will of God and as a result of their faith in Christ. If we flip uh, back to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 verse 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So what do we do with all this? Okay, be prepared. I need to be prepared. What kind of suffering am I going to go through? I don't know. But ultimately, our text is telling us today, we need to be prepared for suffering. 
We've talked a little bit about the purposes of suffering, but, but how do we put that into practice? What do we do with that today? Well, I think it really, when, as I was reading this, it, I came to three things. I wanted to have four, but in the church, you're only supposed to have three. <laughs> but I believe we need to remember, we need to repent, and we need to return. Remember, let's remember Christ and his sacrifice. This book and his life is there for us to remember. That's what Peter is telling us to do. Remember what it was that Christ has done for us. Remember that if he suffered, we can suffer for the same purpose, which is to glorify God according to his will. So we need to remember his sacrifice. Repent. Repent is to turn away from sin and toward God. The text says there's been enough time for sin. Move on. I think probably the, the most important thing to me about recognizing, and, and Mark Hardy helped me recognize that uh, repent has to turn, to turn away from, but it also has the, the definition of to change one's mind about. We need to change our mind about who God really is. Uh, Todd taught me the, the A.W. Tozer quote of uh, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Well, why? Because... Uh, an accurate view of who God is and his attributes allows us to interact with him rightly. But too many times we have a skewed perspective of who God is and consequently those things affect how we respond. If he's good and faithful and just and right, then suffering that I'm going through right now is either a consequence of my bad decisions and either way he's trying to help me grow into the into who he wants me to become as a, a follower of his. So we need to remember, we need to repent. The other piece of the repent is if we're turning away from sin or away from something, we need to turn toward something. Well, the somethings are turn away from sin and turn toward God. It doesn't do us any good to turn away from sin and then wander. We need to turn and focus on something specific. What is that? It's God. So remember and repent, and then return. We need to return to the will of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Return our focus to the gospel and return our thanks to him by offering our lives as our spiritual service of worship. Return to the will of God and keep fervent in our love for one another. Spoiler alert, that's verse 7. Sorry, Todd. Let me close with this. If you'll flip a couple of pages to the right. 1 Peter 5.10. And I've heard Todd teach on this particular verse before, and it's terrific, so I'm looking forward to it. But it says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So God loves us. He cares for us. He made a way where we can be prepared for suffering, where we can endure hardship and live our lives with a living hope. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you that by your grace and mercy, by your provision of your son's life and death and resurrection, that we can be 
Our faith will allow us to be reunited with you in him. Would you help us to recognize that in our suffering, you're working to build us into who you want us to become? And ultimately, Lord, that our purpose is to suffer in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. And we can only do that if we recognize that it is according to your will. So, Father, help us to focus on the living hope that you offer us in Christ and be ready to give an account. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. There's salvation in your name. Our chains are gone. And so what Peter is reminding us is that we need to be prepared for the suffering that will occur. But he's reminding us that in the grace of our Heavenly Father and His Son who died for us, then we can be encouraged. And according to His will, we might suffer, but we have a living hope. So let me encourage you this week that as you run into challenges, and they're out there, some of you are in the middle of them right now, but also remember that we are, because we have this living hope, we also have a story to tell. Peter says that we are to be ready at all times to give an account. Account of what? To give an account of our hope, that living hope that we have within us. And so let me encourage you as you go out that when the week gets hard, when the month gets hard, focus on he who has redeemed us and be prepared to endure that grace or that challenge with grace in a way that's honoring to him and be ready to give an account as to how you do that because it's not normal.